Hey, it's Seth Godin. In the summer of 2012, I had an amazing opportunity to spend three days with a group of extremely motivated entrepreneurs, people right at the beginning of building their project, launching their organization. During those three days, I took them on a guided tour of some of the questions they were going to have to wrestle with, some of the difficult places they were going to just stand up and say, this is me, this is what I'm making. I'm sorry you couldn't be there, but I hope this is the next best thing. Excerpts from the live event, unrehearsed, no slides. Here it is. Enjoy it. But even more important, I hope you do something with it. Thanks for listening. All right, so the next thing I have in here is the fabled out-of-print Ship It Journal. You guys can take these apart and pass them around. That'd be great. Do not look ahead, please, when you open them up. Wait, I need one too, though. Thank you. So this comes in a five pack for a reason. And the reason was I wanted people to buy five at a time. And the reason, <laughs> and the reason you needed to buy five at a time was you need to do this with everyone on the team at the same time. So everyone on the team gets one of these and it has to be in print. So there's a digital version that I'll be um, publicizing soon that will be free. But I didn't do the digital. You're looking ahead, Don. Uh, I didn't do the digital version because I knew people would just look ahead, say, oh, OK, I get it, and put it away. It's very important that it involves pen and paper because people act differently when they have to write something down. Now, this goes right to this idea of the dip. If you fill this out in pen all the way to the end, I guarantee you will ship your project. If you don't care enough to ship your project, don't fill this out. But if you do fill it out and you tell the truth on every page, you will ship your project. And to sit with a team of three or four or five people and have an honest discussion about whether people are willing to write this down, and it takes about an hour, we're not going to do the full thing today, is to understand what the dip is. Because you could quit that day if you want. You can fire people that day if you want. You can move on. Or you can say, we're going to do this because we're going to ship the thing. That make sense? I really like the idea of, well, we're going to have an aside here because it's relevant to something later in the book. But let me talk about it now. A guy named Steve McConnell worked at Microsoft for years and years. And he could not understand how an organization as smart as Microsoft so often missed ship dates for software and how, um, how expensive it was. What tends to happen is this. The first edition of a piece of software, Excel 1.0, Word 1.0, tends to be built by two people, tends to get out the door ahead of schedule and work OK. The second version 
of a piece of software is almost always a disaster because it gets loaded up with features and the management of the whole process is bad. And the third version of a piece of software um, tends to take a hundred times as many people to build as the first version. And it's not just software, it's fancy office buildings and everything else. Well, here's what we understand is the reason. When you're working on a significant project, a couple people are involved in iterating about it, brainstorming about it, going back and forth. If you think about your projects, it's two or three people at the most. But then it gets sort of interesting, and I'll use a corporate example first. So a vice president gets involved and a couple other people on corporate. So they have more ideas, maybe there's a focus group or two. So the amount of variation, what Steve calls thrashing, happens, right? Meanwhile, this is time and this is ship date right here. Well, it's working really well, so now you've got to bring in the marketing guys because you're going to be spending a lot of time launching it, and some salespeople, and they have a very different idea. And so now the programmers say, well, we have to rebuild the database. And then the salespeople say, well, that means the price is going to have to be higher. And the marketing people say, well, that means I need a bigger budget. And at this point, Balmer comes in, right? So now there's more meetings. And the project's almost canceled because it's getting close to being behind schedule, but they look at how much money they've spent so far, and it's going way up. At this point, they go one more cycle, and they're about to launch, and then the corporate lawyers are invited in for one last look just to make sure, so then they have to rewrite the source, right? And you miss your date. Changes to buildings, software, and projects at this level are inanely, insanely, crazily expensive compared to here, where they're almost free, right? Like, for you to change your business model here cost you a nickel. If you want to change it the day before you launch, you got big trouble. So Steve's answer is really simple. Thrash at the beginning, and then keep taking people off the project until you launch. And it's really easy to look at this and say that's impossible, but it's not impossible. In fact, that's the only way to do it. That when it's cheap and it's just in the paper planning stage, that's when every person who has to approve it has to show up. And when it's over here, Steve Ballmer is not allowed in the building because Steve already approved it when he saw the PowerPoint version of the layout here. Too late, Steve. You don't get to tell us you want to move the save and the exit buttons around. Not allowed. And when I had my first real job, my only real job, at Spinnaker, uh, the president of the company was a great guy, and he, uh, I was in charge of a whole bunch of projects, and if we missed the date by even one day, the company, all 100 employees, would go bankrupt. And I had learned from working with him that he was really busy, and like Balmer, but with better taste, he would show up at the last possible minute to play the game, we made computer games, and give his really valuable feedback when it was too late. So I had these five products I had to get out. I had a year to get them out. And we had just finished the scripts. And the scripts had every word that was going to appear on every screen. And we had the pictures, the art, mostly done. And we had some sound done. These were the first computer adventure games that had pictures and sound. And uh, I s walked into David's office and I said, here are the five scripts. Here's the sample pictures. Here are the sound files. And here's a piece of paper. What the piece of paper says is, I, David Cease, if 
the software has this script and the software uses these images. Sorry about that. Um, and the sound sounds like this. We'll approve the game when it's done. And I said, David, you can take as long as you want to read these scripts. And you can take as long as you want to look at these pictures. But you see that team out there of seven people? No one is going to work on anything until you sign this piece of paper. I said, but once you sign the piece of paper, you may not comment on a word in the script. I was 24. You may not comment on a word in the script, and you may not comment on the music or the way the graphics look, because I'm showing them to you today. And he looked at me and had this great laugh, and he so respected why I was doing this that he laughed and he smiled and he signed the piece of paper, and he never bothered us again. And that's the only reason we made our date. It's because I kept that piece of paper. I wish I had it to this day. And if anyone said, what about? And I say, sorry, it's already approved. We can't change that. And the same thing's true if they're renovating the supermarket down the street. And you just see the number of tradesmen keeps going up who are there, but the number of people who get to make decisions about architecture keeps going down because they're not allowed to be there. All right, so now to the Ship It Journal. So the idea here is that what I've tried to do, let's go to the first page with uh, blanks in it, is what I've tried to do is force people to demonstrate precision and intent about a project. So the first question is, what exactly is this project? It can't be vague, because vague things are not manageable, finite, time-dated, and doable or failable. It's only a project if you can say, we failed. It's only a project if you can say, it's done. So Facebook is not a project. A project is adding comments to picture pages. That's a project. And then you have to pick, as a group, a date and a time on that date when it will be done. Not when it approximately will be done, but when it will be done, done. And if you can't pick a date, you don't have a project. Don't have this meeting. Go back, figure out what you need to, so you can have this meeting. Next page is, give me the name of one person who is in charge of making this date happen. There are other people who work on the project. That's fine. You can divide the task into multiple projects. That's fine. But it's not a project unless one human being is responsible for getting it to ship on time. And that's, by definition, that person gets to tell everybody else what has to happen for it to ship on time. So one of the things we did at Spinnaker in order for us to make a thing, at the end we had 60 or 50 people working on it full time, is I had a bunch of buttons made. Some were green and some were red. And if you were on the critical path to get this thing out the door, you had a green button. And if you weren't, you had a red button. And the deal was, if a person from, with a green button needed something from a person with a red button, they got it. So if you were in accounting and you had a red button on and the person who was a green button on needed you to play test the game for 20 minutes to test a little section of it or we would miss the deadline, the person in accounting had to stop what they were doing and help the person in the play testing division by testing this section of the game. If you're serious about shipping the project, that's what you're going to do. Right? Otherwise you're not serious, so don't complain when you don't ship it. Okay, so then we get right into the nitty gritty about telling ourselves the truth of what we're afraid of. Because one of the things we're afraid of is not making the date. Okay, I get that. But there's all these other things we're afraid of, which is why we delay things. 
which is why we look at things at the last minute, which is why we make changes. We're afraid of being made fun of, getting bad reviews on Amazon, not selling, not getting picked up, people thinking it's too this or too that. And so all of these emotions need to be brought up early so we can be really clear about what this is and what it's for as a project. Now, along the way, to get this thing to ship, we're going to have to make compromises. So this next page, Pick Some Edges, is about compromises. Some of the things you're doing, you are just not willing to compromise on. Zappos, not willing to compromise, save money on how long they're willing to spend on the phone with a customer. Are they willing to save money on how thick the cardboard is that they use to box up the shoes? Absolutely. If they could save money by using thinner cardboard, it doesn't affect what their business is all about. So you've got to highlight here, what are the edges that your company, your project stands for, and which ones don't you care about? And what that means is if it comes down to a compromise to make the budget or make the time, you say, I'm not compromising that one, but I will compromise this one, because you're not going to have everything. Okay, so let's say that the reason we're building this flashlight is because this is going to be the most durable flashlight ever made. This flashlight is going to be waterproof, sunproof, shockproof, etc. And then they come to you, and there's six weeks left before the deadline, and they say, Terry, we got a problem. The titanium shipments aren't going to be coming in on time unless we pay an extra $10,000, but we can substitute aluminum. And you say, why? Are we doing that because it's going to make it cheaper? Or are we doing that, like, what's the impact of that? And they say, well, the problem is it's going to make it a lot less durable. You say, but the whole reason we made it was to make it durable, pay the money. Whereas if they say, no, 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 it's going to change the price, you say, I don't care, we're in the durable business, we're not in the cheap business. That's what I'm getting at. Okay, next page. Who are we trying to please? Who is our customer? Again, this is where so many projects get stuck. None of these projects have to do with the laws of physics. They all have to do with taste. They all have to do with compromise. Someone comes into the office and says, you know, I was talking to my mom, she didn't understand the taglines on all our cell pages. I think we need to redo them. Well, you need to go down this list and see where is this person's mom on the list. <laughs> and if you're not trying to please her, you don't try to please her. It's that simple. So if, you know, if you're talking about helping an author with a Kickstarter, and the author decides she doesn't like you know, the fourth level prize, and you say, but your readers love the fourth level prize, if you've done this, who's it for? Is it for the author or is it for the readers? When, impo when possible, do both. But if it's not possible, who's it for? Important to understand. Okay, so to jumping ahead a little bit. Questions and ideas for the devil's advocate. Now, I know a guy in publishing who every meeting I have with him, even after I wrote a blog post about this that he read, can't help himself. He says, let me play devil's advocate here for a second and then explains why some idea I'm doing isn't going to work. And every time Will says it, I say, the devil's doing fine, he doesn't need an advocate. And every time Will says, yeah, I know, because he doesn't think about it when he says his expression. So this is a list of all the reasons that people are going to give you about why your project isn't going to work. And you just have to say, oh, it's already written down in the book. So we don't have to have a discussion about any of these reasons, because I already read them all. I just put that down there to make it easier for you. Okay, so then, particularly with internal projects, but also projects um, where there's a board of health or whatever, 
who can stop it? Who can say, I do not approve of this, you are not allowed to do this, I am stopping you from doing this? Because those people have, by definition, a real say in whatever compromises you're going to make to get this thing out the door. Okay? The next page is the opposite of that, which is, who are the people who are essential to us making this thing work? Who are the people I have to court or engage with or satisfy because their contribution will make the project a project? Now we get to my favorite sneak question. Which on the next page it says, what does perfect look like? I would like you to list when your project is working perfectly, exactly what is it? What kind of profit does it have? Who loves it? What shape is it? What color is it? What do the reviews say? Whatever is important to you about perfect, this is the page where you write down what it is like when it is perfect. But then the next page says, what does good enough look like? And good enough probably shouldn't be the same as perfect. And the definition of good enough is good enough. Because perfect is the enemy of good. And it is better to ship something that is good enough, because you told me what good enough was, than to ship nothing. So you need to be really clear with the team that they get four gold stars if they make something perfect, but they all still get gold stars if they make something good enough. Because we're all in the business of making things that are good enough, even if you want, you can make good enough really close to perfect, but there's a difference. And you cannot be in the business of shipping on a regular basis if perfect is your only option because you just don't get perfect. Okay, then we get into the nitty-gritty, and you can't fit it here. Every task, every event that needs to happen, by what date, by whom. The concrete has to be delivered by this date and piled up right here. The tow truck needs to be ready to move this item from here to here. This batch of code and this piece of art need to be done by this date. And you just exhaustively list every dependency and everything that everyone has to do. And if you need to, you make those into mini projects with mini project managers. And it's here that the friction starts to show up because the concrete guy can't do it because he didn't get paid and he didn't get paid because the CFO didn't authorize the payment and the CFO didn't authorize the payment because the form wasn't filled right and the form didn't fill right because this guy was on vacation. And you go all the way back and you discover that just because one person didn't fill out one form, your project is going to be a month late. And the goal is on the first day to be really clear with everybody about what all those dependencies are, and to rip out every dependency that's there just because it's always been there, and to replace them with ever smaller teams with ever more responsibility. That is really critical. If the project is worth doing, it's worth doing with a smaller team. So uh, what I'm having trouble visualizing is, now it's me. Mm -hmm. I'm not a programmer. Right. And so, how how would I how would I leverage this tool right now? Or does this come once I is, is the first step? I need to amass a team with the right. No. So you say, I'm going to need programming. That's got to, early on. There's that there's a place we're going to list what's going to have to be part of this project. Then you call Brian at VJ Labs in Maryland and say, Brian, on uh, December fifteenth, I'm going to need software that matches this approximate spec, okay? For me, for you to make that date, for you to bet your reputation on that date, on what date do you need to get from me every screenshot, every layout, every requirement? And he says back to you, September 1st. So suddenly, 
The only deadline that matters if you really want to ship on January 15th is September 1st. If you miss September 1st, you're never going to make it up in volume. You're never going to make it up later on. September 1st is the do or die day. So then you go to your graphic designer and you say, Mr. Graphic Designer, by September 1st I need this. What do you need from me today to guarantee your entire reputation that on September 1st I will have this? And if he's any good, he's going to say, I'll tell you one thing I need. You're not allowed to call me after, after August 10th. Because if you call me after August 10th, I'm going to have to drop everything and do something new, and then I can't make September 1st. You say, fine. So if I give you this, this, and this by August 9th, you're promising me that on September 1st I'll have that. Now you can build Slack in, which is a useful thing to do. Don't tell everyone that you're putting a week of buffer between them. But the point is, you're now being honest with yourself. That in fact, to get this out on January 15th, you have to finalize everything by August 22nd whatever the date is. And that's tomorrow. So somewhere along the way, you were fibbing to yourself. And it's not going to ship on January 15th. So rather than paying all these overage charges to race like a maniac in December, you better either say, I'm going to need to make a smaller project, or I need to change my ship date. That's what I'm talking about. So we move the thrashing all the way to the first day. That's what we're trying to do with all of this. So that what Brian at VJ has said is, I don't want to get a call from a graphic designer after September 1st. Well, so you just move graphic thrashing all the way over here, which is where every other organization would be looking for the first time on November 10th at what Brian showed them. So the way we built Squidoo, as I told you the other day, is we gave him every single screenshot, and we never called him once. And then he, call, he called us up, he said, it's done. We said, we said, here's your check, thank you. He said, that has never happened to us once in doing 150 websites. Because right? they make all their profit on the changes. Right? So he's like, we were happy to work with you, but we didn't make any money because you didn't bother us. <laughs> and they were on time, and so were we. Okay, so the lean thing, and I am no expert on it at all, involves a post-industrial thinking about code, which is that code is soft, code is malleable, and if you break it into small building blocks, changes won't kill us. So the thought is build the minimum viable product. Most people don't understand the word minimal or viable. right? Something that people can actually use. Figure out what's working. Evolve. Go to the next thing. Go to the next thing. Go to the next thing. And then finally, because the coder is sitting right next to the marketing person and you're doing this as a team, the thing that launches into the world is cheaper and faster and more agile than if you did it the top-down industrial way. And so Eric would disagree with me about how to do this. He's saying, thrash from the beginning to the end and just keep thrashing. Always be shipping, always be in beta, always figure out what's working. And I'm more old school than that because first of all, I think lots of things in life aren't involving software. I also think you, if you understate what viable is, you will launch something that has no chance to capture hearts and minds. And if it doesn't capture hearts and minds, you're not going to extract the value you really need. And that in a market that increasingly values beauty and likes the reliability that comes from connection, sometimes that approach isn't going to work. On the other hand, at Threadless, two of the guys who pioneered this whole thing, built a bad version of Threadless and a slightly less bad version and a slightly less bad version, and now they're a $40 million company. It definitely works. I just don't think it's as useful 
in lots of other areas of our lives. And it can't hurt to have these organizational conversations even if you're being agile. You never want someone with power coming in at the end and telling you your strategy was wrong. You know, to Tony's point, one way that engineers do that is they say it's a thousand micro versions of the software. Each one is an online pitch to use my software. I'm saying it's a hundred small projects where project number one is come up with a PowerPoint that's good enough so that when I have a sales call, I can show it to people asserting it's real and see what they say. That's a project, right? That first thing. And a lot of you came in here two days ago thinking, no, no, I need to finish everything and make sure it's perfect. Then I can go on a sales call. Well, of course you're stuck because it's impossible to finish everything and it's impossible for it to be perfect and you don't want to go on a sales call. So the three of those put together means you're going to be planning for the rest of your life, but you're not actually interacting with the market. Right? That interaction is key. It's really worthwhile to take a step back and figure out what's going to be hard about your product. If I went to a wedding with 100 disposable cameras and I gave them out, and then two days later, everyone who was at the wedding got an Apple printed book created by 500 people filling in quotes and notebooks and taking pictures with a disposable camera. And then I said to those 100 people, want to buy another one? And I found out no one did. That's a version of a minimal viable product that had no software whatsoever involved. I found out if the, if the book itself is so electric that people need to buy more of them. Maybe, though, the hard part is it just has to be, can I find people who will use it online and contribute? Right? And it has nothing to do with analogs in the real world. If that's the thing I'm testing, well, a minimal viable version is I create an email address and I publicize that email address at some concert. Everybody, send me your pictures. Everyone sends in a picture to that email address. I quickly paste something up, make it a Tumblr, and see how many people want to come to the Tumblr, how many people want to comment on it. Is that sort of thing something that touches them that they're excited about? Again. These are ways that you can test the words that you use, the way you promise things to people. Again, no technology was used whatsoever. The, you know, so when, what, one of the magic things of Yelp and Facebook and eBay is they're analogs, digital analogs, of things that we were already totally into. And they didn't invent a whole new way of human beings interacting. So this is a slight analog of something, but you're supercharging it because you have digital and everyone has the phone in their pocket. If the, the, the worst case for you from an MVP is it needs a Martha Stewart flair and fit and finish before people fall in love with it and trust it, in which case your MVP is your final product. And that happens too, right? And I would argue that that's what... Um, uh, what's that uh, travel website that I saw at Techstars? Wanderly, right? So Wander only works because it's unbelievably beautiful. If they had built a non-beautiful version of Wander, fail. No one cares if the database is any good. That's easy to fix. But they needed a million dollars to make Wander beautiful. That might be what you need. You're going to have to figure out what you're going to have to what part is going to be the hard part here. And that's going to come from your sense of hanging out with the kind of customer you want. 
Last thought on that. The web's a big place. There's lots of kinds of customers on the web. What we found out at Squidoo the hard way is that high-end, fashionable people like Tumblr, they don't like Squidoo. Stay-at-home moms who are interested in you know, chameleons and tattoos, they like Squidoo. So we ended up with a group of people we didn't think we were going to end up with because of the way we made the offering. The minute we said we'll pay you a royalty, we got a totally different group of people than Tumblr, which gives people nothing. Right? So you're going to say, am I building this for hipsters in the East Village who don't go to the Highland anymore because everyone goes? Or am I building this for people who are going to the big family wedding in Chicago? Totally different groups. You don't know which group, what they want. You have to pick. Then you can find out what they want. Okay, so a couple of things I want to cover here. Who becomes your competition gets back to the fear. On the day you launch, you now have competition. On the day you launch, you are no longer with a green screen behind you, it's there's someone just like us. You need to say out loud, that person then becomes our competition because then you've outlined one of the things you're afraid of. And you turn the page, if this doesn't work after you launch, what's the worst that could happen? Really, the worst that could happen. I'll let you read about the Bradman test on your own. Then there's plussing and minusing. And let's get back to, to, to Bob's question here. So, plussing is a Disney term. What Walt Disney used to do as movies were being made is you would say to the animators, these 10 frames, how can you plus them? How can we turn it up to 11? What can we add? What feature can we add? But you can also minus stuff. What can we take away? How do we do less? How do we make a smaller offering? How do we say we don't do that? There are two reasons to do it. One, is because it makes it more likely you're going to finish your project. And two, because it actually makes you more likely that you'll become the best in the world at something. Very few people think that the buffets in Las Vegas are the best in the world. But they have everything. Right? That we would much rather go to Shake Shack where there's five items than go to some place where there's 5,000 items. Because at some point, when you say we have everything, what you're really saying is we have nothing. And I think that there's an interesting conversation to be had about yield maximization. But I'm way more interested in having the conversation of saying, this is me, this is what I stand for. Right? No, we don't do that. We do not serve children. We do not accept this. We do not have that. We are a nudist colony in Mexico for fat people. And if you're, and if you're uncomfortable with fat people, don't come. And if you're uncomfortable with nudists, don't come. That's who we are. That's what we do. None of you, not one I've heard, has a business that's so universal and so magical that it needs to be, this is for everybody. It's not. This isn't for you. If you start with, this isn't for you, it makes it much easier to be remarkable. It makes it much easier to be the best in the world because it's not for you. Then, after it's in the world, and after you have a relationship, and after you can talk to people, you can do legitimate testing to see what you should add as opposed to trying to figure out what you can take away. And the way I like the test for what you should add is this. And I learned this from Sony. So Sony used to run focus groups, and they would discover that people would say anything in a focus group to make the moderator happy. So they're sitting there trying to test this radio that they were going to sell for $49. And at the end of the uh, session, they said to the people in the room, thank you so much for being here. As a gift, we'd like to either give you $20 in cash or the radio and no one wanted the radio. 
There you go. They just learned something really important about the radio. So if you say to people, we're either going to add this feature or this feature, not do you think we should add this feature, we're going to add this feature or this feature, you just discovered something about which feature really matters to people. If you say to people, um, you know, what should we take away so we can add this, you're starting to discover what really matters to people. But you never want to get to the point where there's a democracy deciding what you're offering. Right? The minute you say, all right, everybody vote, what should I do next? Then you're not adding enough value to the people you're leading. When was the last time you did something for the first time? And that notion that as we cross 19 years old, we are instructed and, in, and encouraged to not do something we haven't done before, uh, I think is a really bad thing. And I think the feeling that one gets from doing the new thing, from this might not work, is what rewards us as humans. And amazingly, society is now rewarding. So I want you to think about as you go back through this project that you just spent an hour analyzing so it would actually ship, what if you built in four more weeks of time so you could put stuff into the project that might not work? What if you invest an enormous amount of your time and energy to do something in the world that might not work? That what professionals do is they stay professionals by regularly doing things that require emotional labor, regularly doing things that are outside of their comfort zone. That, yeah, it might be a matter of life and death, but yes, I still want my neurosurgeon to learn something new. And that idea that that's why we're doing this is at the heart of this. You don't need this if you're making chicken Florentine every single night in a restaurant, because you've done it enough times that, yes, it's going to come out in time for this patron to be happy. Who needs to go through this? This is all about, I'm doing this because I've never done it before. OK, so then to wrap up, um, I bring up the thing that we've underlied so much of today and yesterday with, which is, comes from Brene Brown. Shame is the project killer. That the fear of shame is what people use to keep us in line. It's what we use to keep women in line. It's what we use to keep the underclasses in line. It's what we use to keep each other in line. Don't get uppity. Don't speak up. You have no right to do that. People will understand that you're unprepared. You don't want to put yourself out there because we will make you feel shame. And what we do with our projects, and the reason our projects are late is because we're adding all this fat to them to protect ourselves. We're adding all this insulation and all these layers. The reason we use 100 words to answer a 10-word question is because the other 90 words are designed to distract the person who asked us the question so that we never have to say the 10 words that are true. Because we're afraid that if we say the 10 words that are true, the person might actually hear what we say and say, you should be ashamed of yourself. You should be ashamed that you didn't know this or that you spoke up about this. So much easier to lay 90 words of other stuff on top of it, and committees and subcommittees, and I can't do that because, and I, you don't know my real thing. Just get to the 10 words, because you have nothing to be ashamed of. You have trumped the shame by being meaningful. You have trumped the shame 
by going into the world and doing something that needed to be done in the first place. And how dare the critic, who has never produced anything useful, ever, stand up and point a finger at you? How dare they say to Joan Allaire, oh, you made up three quotes about Bob Dylan, therefore you should be ashamed of yourself. This guy who puts himself on the line day after day after day and shares and puts stuff out there, all right, you're jealous of him, I get that. But how dare you say he should be ashamed of himself when you have never been in his shoes? And we just have to let go of this. And we have to say, I'm not going to be ashamed of who I am and what I care about. If it's not for you, you're a non-believer. Haters going to hate. Shun the non-believers. You can move on. right? But this is me. And this is what I believe in. And I cared enough about this to put it in the world. If it's not for you, that's okay. But I will not accept your shame. I'm being vulnerable because I want to be better at this. But you may not give me your shame in return. I'm just not going to take it. It's not for you to give me. And once we can do that, then we can fill out the next book and ship the next thing and ship the next thing. And over time, the foundation gets stronger and stronger and stronger and you get better at it and suddenly your dreams become projects and your projects become businesses and you can do it again. And so that is why I do these events. So that you understand that and so that you put stuff into the world. Thank you for listening to The Startup School with Seth Godin. To learn more about Seth or to subscribe to his daily blog, please visit sethgodin.com. You can also find his books in any bookstore or on amazon.com. This has been an Earwolf Media production. Executive producers Jeff Ulrich and Scott Aukerman. For more information, visit Earwolf.com.